there are so many missed opportunities to engage younger people in conversations about loss and death. And oftentimes, I think when synagogues or churches or community centers do any sort of program around illness, around loss, around grief, they are targeting baby boomers and the older generations. They are not looking to younger people in part because they think we might not want to talk about it, which in many cases is not untrue. Um, Though I don't think that's any less true in older generations. And I think in part, they don't think we have the experiences that would shed light on those conversations. And in my experience, I think there are so many young people who have unfortunately experienced loss, very real, very deep losses at very young ages. I can't even count the number of experiences that I've had, and I'm just one person. Welcome to the Beside Project, an exploration of where the end of life and Judaism intersect. My name is Sarit, and I'm out to uncover what wisdom and rituals Judaism provides for the dying, for the people caring for the dying, and for what comes next. I'm Arielle Friedtanzer. I use she, her pronouns. I am currently in Los Angeles, and I think I can now officially say, now back in Los Angeles, I was born and raised here and came back during COVID and stayed with my parents for almost a year before deciding to buy a house out here. So I'm out in LA. It's nice and warm and sunny. (laughs) Can't complain. I am an end-of-life consultant. I found something that really speaks to what I love. So I work now as a client care lead for a company called Lighten. And that is a company that focuses on offering virtual celebrations of life and memorials. It's a company that existed before COVID, though it was more in person. And obviously, when the world shut down, we changed direction. And now actually, as things are opening back up, it's giving a really interesting opportunity to do things in person again and maybe sort of hybrid events. But it's been a really incredible opportunity to grow with this company and to meet other fabulous teammates. I think that, or I hope that those who have participated in some sort of online or virtual memorial or shiva or funeral during COVID have seen that there is something really beautiful to be gained from being able to offer this in a virtual way. Not only, we always say that there's nothing that replaces the opportunity to gather in person after a loss. And so that is crucial, but there's something so beautiful about being able to include people who are all over the world on different time zones who might not be able to afford to get there in person, or maybe who feel like a little too distant in relation to go in person, but still remember that person and have something to share. And it's just been a really touching way to to bring families and communities together. For all the distress, difficulty, and heartbreak that the pandemic brought into our lives, many of us now, as we see the world starting to shift again, are asking, what are the good things that have come from this time that we don't want to lose when the world reopens? Ariel's response to that is something I've heard now from people when they're thinking both about joy and about sorrow. Often, the people we are close to might not live physically nearby, and those are the people we want with us for life's most important moments. I asked Ariel how she came to Lighten and the work she does now. 
I uh, went to undergrad at List College, the Columbia and Jewish Theological Seminary joint program. And there I studied urban studies and Talmud. But while I was there, I was deciding whether I wanted to be a rabbi or a doctor. So before my junior year, I spent a month in Israel studying Jewish medical ethics at the Schlesinger Institute. While there, everyone in my program knew that I was really navigating this path and didn't know which one was going to be right for me. Um, Turns out I wasn't great at science, so that was an easy choice. But while I was there, we got to learn from different doctors and specialists at the Shari Tzedek Medical Center in Jerusalem. And one of them, who was the head of palliative care at the hospital, came and spoke to us. And it was towards the end of the program. And while we were listening to him and he described the work that he and his team do and that volunteers who come to the hospital do, I lost it. Like I just started bawling in the middle of the session and everyone kind of looked at me and I was like, that's it. I got to do chaplaincy. Like it is exactly the path I want. And from that moment on, I started pursuing that and everything from my life, all the different pieces of who I was kind of fell into place. I'm actually getting teary just talking about it. Like it it feels so much the right path. So I got back to school and uh, decided after college that I was going to um, test out what it was like to be in the clinical setting as a chaplain. And so after a year of working, I decided to start my first unit of CPE or clinical pastoral education. And I did that out in Children's Hospital in LA. That was an amazing experience because it showed me sort of all my my strengths as a Jew and as a, a Jewish leader and being able to explain things and to be there in service with people and to care for people. But it also showed me all these weaknesses that I didn't know I had, like spontaneous prayer, uh, English prayer, um, all these things that I just didn't know were really in my forte, um, and they weren't. Um, so I it, there was a lot of growth that happened there. Um, And then I moved back to New York, knowing that chaplaincy was 100% the right path for me, but not really knowing how to get there. Took a few years working in the corporate world before starting my master's degree at NYU. And there I created my own master's in individualized study, concentrating in Judaic studies, bioethics, and social work. And the idea there was, I know I want to get to chaplaincy, but I don't want to take the traditional path to get there. And I don't feel like everyone who's trained as a chaplain or who is a clergy member has all the skills that are needed to be a good chaplain. So that program was just perfect. It was absolutely the right choice. And the only time I probably wish I could have been in school for longer. After that, that's when things sort of went crazy. So I graduated that in May, 2018. And again, I'd been living in New York for 11 years, pretty much at that point. And my husband and I decided that we were going to head out on the road. There were a lot of places in the country that we really wanted to visit that we could only get to during the warm months. So we bought a car and we moved out of New York and we did a crazy road trip for almost 20 months until COVID hit. It was amazing. But even more than just the chance to explore this beautiful country that we live in that is so much bigger than I realized, (laughs) it really gave me a chance to bring that end-of-life work into the world. What I mean by that is when I defended my thesis, uh, which was on the attitudes of conservative Jews toward physician-assisted death, I told my committee that I needed to become a megaphone on this issue. This was... It was something that was a really a deep passion of mine, the topic itself. I got to that place and needing to be this megaphone and then ultimately becoming an end-of-life consultant from three different things. The first is that I was doing this master's degree and had decided that this was going to be my topic of study for my thesis. 
And as part of that, I was interviewing rabbis and I was surveying Jews of all denominations. Um, I ended up having a little over 200 respondents and um, about 20 rabbis that I interviewed in person about these issues. And what I was realizing is that people are not only really unfamiliar with their options at the end of life, whether that's medical aid and dying or something else, but that they're not comfortable talking about it with their rabbis. They're not necessarily comfortable talking about it with their doctors, and they're certainly not talking about it with their families. So I felt like I needed to find a way to bring these conversations to light. The second piece of this was that um, I was doing my second unit of clinical pastoral education, and um, each of those units is 800 hours. And this time I was at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. That was a completely different experience than my first time, because the first time I was working with children and their parents, and for very good reason, many of those parents were not willing to engage in the topic of death or mortality. They weren't willing to think about anything that could happen to their kids. Um, And sometimes that lasted even until after their child died. Unfortunately, I did have to tend to a couple of deaths there, but I think the level of capacity that I felt was so much smaller. The imposter syndrome was very, very real. It's still probably pretty real. Um, But at Memorial Sloan Kettering, because it's a cancer hospital, I would say almost everyone there has considered their mortality by the time they're getting some sort of treatment there. So even if they are not dying and they are fairly healthy or they're in remission or wherever they are on that journey, they've thought about it. And so when a chaplain walks into the room, sometimes they don't want to talk, but most of the time, if they do let you into the room, they are willing to go very deep, very quickly. And so it really gave me such beautiful insight into what can happen when you are willing to engage with your mortality and you're willing to have these conversations. And you've thought about all the beautiful ways that thinking about death can actually make your life more meaningful. But most of us don't do that. And thank God, most of us aren't facing those issues. Unfortunately, it often takes those kinds of of illnesses to make us think about those issues. If you're doing the math, you know that I'm jumping in before Ariel gets to the third piece of her journey. I want to underscore what she just said about considering one's mortality and what can happen when you're willing to engage with mortality. Because there's a thread running through everything that she will share today about the possibilities that might unfold if we open ourselves up to engaging with our mortality, even when death isn't imminent. And I want to underline that theme. Okay, that's all. Back to Ariel with number three, a really incredible piece of her story. So the third piece of uh, this journey was my own piece. My father's two remaining parents were alive and well. And in December of 2017, my grandmother passed away suddenly. And my grandfather, her husband, uh, sat the seven days of Shiva, seven days of traditional mourning. And he died on the night that he got up. And this was probably, again, (laughs) one of those things that makes you tear up while you talk about it. One of the most painful experiences and arguably the most spiritual experience I've ever had and was absolutely perfect for their love story. And so the reason that I say that that's sort of the third piece in this journey of how I got to end of life consulting is because 
my grandfather had suffered a lot, especially in the last few years he was alive. Um, he had been in and out of the hospital many times. Uh, my grandmother as well, but she was sort of more status quo. And so for my grandfather, who had really suffered and had moments where he said all he wanted to do was die and he couldn't live like this anymore and he couldn't live like this anymore, he would do anything to have one more day with my grandmother. And once my grandmother died, he lost that will. I mean, it was really, I could, I could talk for hours about the experience of those 10 days, but he could have lived for years physically. And so the fact that he died then was purely about his connection to her and wanting to be with her, but what made it so impactful for us, aside from losing both of those grandparents, was that he had allowed me to make sure that he died in exactly the way that he wanted to. So back about 18 months before he died, um, he had been in the hospital intubated for 12 days. When he got out of the hospital, I was really frustrated with the way that things had happened. Um, He had expressed his choices verbally and the um, medical proxies chose to override that, which they are allowed to do um, in accordance with his advanced directive. And he ended up recovering. Um, So he didn't want to be fed. And the choice that was made by his medical proxies was to feed him. And uh, he he recovered. But I was so angry that he didn't have his wishes honored that I swore I was going to make sure I knew exactly what he wanted. When he got out of the hospital, I uh, recorded him telling us exactly what he would want if he would end up in that situation again. And he was absolutely comfortable talking about death. Um, And he was absolutely fine sharing his wishes. There was a, a family meeting that he went into at another point when he had been really ill. And before he went into the family meeting, I sat down to play a game called Go Wish with him. I didn't know if he'd understand a way to play it, you know, back and forth. So I said, okay, grandpa, I'm going to read you these 35 cards. And I want you to tell me if it's really important to you or not at all important to you. He is still the only person I've ever played with who was able to pick his choices on the first try. That man knew exactly what he wanted and he was going to be in control until his very last breath. And he was, which was amazing. So he made his choices and I said, okay, make sure that you think about this when you go into that family meeting and you tell your doctors what's important to you. When he was on his deathbed, we had about 36 hours uh, right before he died where he, he had seemed to have some sort of stomach bug that was going around. It turned out he was negative for it. So we think it was just his way of like shutting his body down to be able to die But in that 36 hours, he had had moments where he was lucid and moments where he wasn't. And sort of before he had his last lucid moments um, and he started feeling sick, I said to him in front of my aunt and in front of my mom, do you want to go to the hospital if you get sicker? And he said, no, I want to die where grandma died because they used to share a room at their nursing home. And that was in accordance with those wishes. He wanted to die at home. That was his home. And so we were able to make those choices. He wanted to be cognitively sound. He wanted to to be free from pain. All these things that we could in some way control. And in the end, we didn't have to control most of them. Some of them he controlled. He made sure his finances were in order. Um, He made sure that he had an advocate who knew what he wanted. 
these were things that he had chosen. And at the end of the day, he picked exactly what he wanted for his death. And he gave us the opportunity to create that for him. So that was a really long way of telling you that in that third prong, I was able to realize that if we only had these conversations when we weren't dying, we actually would have the possibility of changing what our deaths look like. And so those three things together sort of set me on that mission when we hit the road to be able to become a megaphone on this, to get families talking and to get people who wouldn't otherwise engage in conversations around loss or grief or planning for the end of life to come to the table and have these conversations. And I wish it had happened more, but there were about 25 programs that I did while on the road. And each one was so special. So Ariel was able to bring these conversations into communities across the country. And after spending so much time interacting with Jewish people of all backgrounds and this topic, I asked her how she thinks Judaism is measuring up when it comes to the end of life. I always say that Judaism does death really well. And I think there's always room for improvement. I think that the way Judaism lines up sort of the isolation the forced isolation in many ways, um, or stepping back from normal life to mourn and then to gradually reacclimate to normal life. Um, I think that's really brilliant and it really mirrors the general human experience of grief. And I think there is something very powerful, at least to me, of burying somebody. And I always say that the most powerful moment to me, the most um visceral moment is shoveling dirt onto a grave. I think that there is something missed in other sort of disposition options in cremation or in mausoleums. And I have no judgment on anybody who chooses those paths, but I think there is something so, something so visceral in hearing that sound and in feeling like that is what your heart feels like. You felt like your heart just fell to the grave and landed on that, on that coffin. And I think it's often the moment that people hate the most and often the moment that breaks them open. But I think there's something really powerful and really beautiful in the idea that that is the debt that can never be repaid, that we are doing something so much out of loving kindness and something that we, we never expect that person who's, who's in the grave to repay for us. And we don't expect their families to repay it to us, that this is our obligation as members of a Jewish community to be there and to do that. And I think it offers a, a different level of closure to that experience. As I've been exploring approaches to end of life, I've learned that chaplains and people who visit with the sick and dying often have toolkits with them when they enter a patient's room. Sometimes that's a metaphorical toolkit of things to say like prayers, poetry, etc. And sometimes there's a literal toolkit, a guitar, a book of readings, an electric candle. I was curious to hear what Ariel has in her toolkit. A note that in the next segment, Ariel shares a story from a time she was called in to be with a family when their baby died. If you want to skip ahead, fast forward two and a half minutes. After I did my first unit of CPE, I felt a little bit like a fraud. 
I'm not talking about in the, the imposter syndrome kind that I feel all the time, but during my unit, I was caring for mostly Catholic Hispanic families. And in doing so, realized that I know very little about Catholicism, really very little about any religion other than Judaism. And I felt like I couldn't care for them in the same way. Um, and that I really needed to find a way to sort of immerse myself in learning about other faiths. In fact, actually, one of my cases, one of my first cases um, at Children's Hospital, I was called in to baptize a baby before he was taken off life support. And I remember thinking back to my training where we talked about the words of baptism. And I said, you know, am I allowed to do this? And they said, in an emergent case, the Catholic church allows anybody to baptize. And I was like, yeah, but what if, but I'm a Jew. Like, (laughs) I'm not talking about what you think is okay. Like, am I allowed to do this? And I talked to a ton of rabbis and all of them said no. Um, And the sort of consensus that we came to in our unit was you do it if you're comfortable. And if you're not, you don't. And so my sort of MO was, I'm just going to try it. If, if it comes up, I'm going to try it and I'm going to see how it feels. And if I don't do it ever again, I won't. Um, so I ended up trying it out with this first baby, um, very unfortunate case. And I said the words, but I had no idea what they meant. And I didn't know more than that. I didn't know why they meant so much to this family and why this was something they wanted to hear in these last moments. Interestingly, though, after baptizing the baby, I had all the family lay their hands on the baby and we recited the priestly blessing. And so to me, that was like an opportunity to be authentic with them and to be authentically me, while also hopefully giving them a chance to really voice some of what they wanted to offer this child. So it was a really interesting moment of like crossover of knowing and unknowing and familiar and unfamiliar Um, And so after that unit, I decided that I was going to apply for divinity school because I really wanted to become an interfaith chaplain. I wanted to learn about other faiths and to be as knowledgeable if possible in what they do and why, um, or at least to like have some understanding of their theology. So I started a master divinity remotely uh, while I was in New York and it was not the best fit for me. Class-wise, it wasn't necessarily the right thing. And also I think like so many other programs, I think it's so important to be hands-on and to be in the room with your cohort. Um, so it was not a good fit to do a Master of Divinity or anything towards chaplaincy virtually for me. But it did help me realize that I was never going to be as knowledgeable in any faith other than Judaism. I actually remember this one moment where I went to a reunion at the Jewish Theological Seminary, and a mentor of mine, uh, Dr. Andrea Warshoff-Schwartz, was there. And we were talking, and I was telling her that I was doing this program, and I was really struggling as to how to be a, an interfaith chaplain, how to get really the, the right footing for being a chaplain. And she told me this story, and I honestly don't remember any of the details of the story <laughs> now that I think about it. But somehow, the message that I was left with was no matter who I'm serving, I'm always going to be serving them as a Jewish chaplain. And that doesn't make it any less authentic to be serving a Catholic patient or a Muslim patient or a Hindu patient. And that really helped me realize that I could 
sort of work on the other areas of what I thought being a chaplain meant, like the social work, like the ethical questions, and focus less on the actual theological texts, because that was never going to be my strength with those patients. So that's what I did. So the interesting thing is while I had that moment in LA um, during that first unit of how can I serve these patients of other faiths, when I started my second unit and I actually had an Orthodox rabbi as my supervisor, I struggled because I now felt so comfortable being myself as a Jewish chaplain with any patient. I had no idea how to care for Jewish patients because I felt like the strengths that I had to work on in order to feel comfortable caring for a patient of another faith, like the spontaneous prayer, like English prayer, like delving into deeper conversation, were not authentic to how I would have dealt with a Jewish patient, which was playing Jewish geography, you know, reciting some Hebrew prayer. Like there was, it just didn't feel like the two blended. And so I remember asking him that and he said, well, why don't you try the Mishiberach? And that the prayer for healing, I think, A, is such a powerful tool that we have in Judaism. It can be so meaningful to the person who is sick and to their family. It's meaningful to me as the chaplain, because I'm thinking not only about the person in front of me, but also the other people in my life who are sick. And so that really allowed me to connect with Jewish patients, either in Hebrew or in English, and with Jewish patients of any denomination, because as a woman coming into their room, even if they were more religious than I was, they were usually open to me reciting a Mishiberach for them. It really helped me translate what I would do with Jewish patients, with non-Jewish patients. And I was able to bring the English version of Mishiberach into non-Jewish rooms as well. So it was a, I think that was the most influential part of my toolkit, but I did always walk into a room with this notebook of prayers that I like concocted I never opened the book. Literally, I used to tell this to everyone, like it would come with me to every patient's room and I never opened it, but I felt like I needed it to have something in my hand as a physical manifestation of my quality. I don't know. I don't know what that was. (laughs) You can hear how reflective Ariel is and how right her life direction feels. Many of us trace our relationship with the end of life to early childhood memories. Sometimes we can look back with understanding and a peaceful feeling, and sometimes those memories are traumatic and difficult. So I asked her about her earliest memories encountering death. When I think back to sort of how all of this started, like I was a weird kid anyway, but it's rare I think that people grow up and are like, I want to talk about death. Somehow this was always sort of the direction I was going to go in. And I remember thinking, even by college, I had been to probably two dozen funerals by the time I went to college. And that seemed totally normal. As my parents, you know, heard of friends or friends' parents who had passed away, I just, any chance I had, I would go to a funeral. And still sounds a little weird to me when I say it out loud, but I think it all does draw from sort of that first experience. Like when I think about my first experience with death in general, I think for a lot of people, it's a pet or a grandparent. And to me, that was, it was my grandma Fanny. So my grandma Fanny was um, diagnosed with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's when I was six. Um, And she lived with that for five years in a nursing home. And my grandfather, grandpa Ezra, 
was a really wonderful husband and had already survived the loss of one wife. He used to go and visit her every single day. And I would uh, visit, I would stay with him on the weekends. And so every weekend we would go and we would have Shabbat dinner with her. And then we would come home and have our own Shabbat dinner. And then Saturday after shul, we would, after synagogue, we would go and visit with her. And it was so normal to me to be around folks who had Alzheimer's and Parkinson's or other memory loss. It didn't scare me. Um, I know there were a lot of behaviors that folks sometimes are afraid of when they go into a nursing home, especially a memory care unit, but nothing really jolted me. It felt absolutely comfortable, which also sounds kind of mean. Like it wasn't, I mean, I I recognize that these, these residents were suffering, some of them, but my grandmother seemed happy and she seemed happy that we visited. And while I don't know that I completely understood everything about her situation then, I knew that I was one of the last people she remembered. And part of that was also because I was there so often. All of that is to lead up to this first experience of death because none of that was death, it was living. When she was near death, um, my parents were told to go to the nursing home um, because she was expected to die. Um, I don't think I knew that part, but I was home with my sister and we got a phone call and I answered and the nursing home said, should we wait for your parents to get here to call the mortuary? And I said, they're on the way. I think they'll be there soon. And I hung up, looked at my sister, who's four and a half years older than me and said, does that mean grandma died? Because they're talking to an 11 year old. Like, I don't know what a mortuary is. I still don't know if I could explain the difference between a mortuary and anything else to anyone. So when I look at it, Now, I think that having that piece and learning to be so comfortable around death with somebody who was so comfortable around it, Grandpa Ezra had such a special soul and he was able to make, I think he was able to make my grandmother feel as much his wife until the day she died. I think that probably formed this in my body because it really showed me that I could be a companion to people who were sick and dying until they die and oftentimes after. And to be able to be that presence and to make them feel every bit as valuable until that moment, I think is something that he taught me. The more I hear stories of people whose childhood experiences of death being handled well by the adults around them, the more I understand not only the power of having these conversations with the young people in our lives, but also learning how to navigate them better as adults so that we can better be there for ourselves and for those who look to us to lead. The last piece of Ariel's story completes that circle. I asked her what the big audacious goal is, if she continues to be a megaphone to engage people in these conversations who is she hoping to talk to? One of my mentors at NYU, who is a really well-known um, bioethics expert, Dr. Art Kaplan, said that his idea was that the first time someone fills out an advanced directive should be when they get their driver's license. That was so powerful to me. Like you want to instill in a teenager how important and how powerful them getting behind a wheel is like, let them write what happens when they die or what they want to happen to them if they get sick or incapacitated. And I wish, I wish so much that we incorporated that into our DMVs. I I say that as an example of who I want to engage, because I think that 
there are so many missed opportunities to engage younger people in conversations about loss and death. Oftentimes, I think when synagogues or churches or community centers do any sort of program around illness, around loss, around grief, they are targeting baby boomers and the older generations. They are not looking to younger people in part because they think we might not want to talk about it, which in many cases is not untrue, um, though I don't think that's any less true in older generations. And I think in part, they don't think we have the experiences that would shed light on those conversations. And in my experience, I think there are so many young people who have unfortunately experienced loss, very real, very deep losses at very young ages, whether that's through illness or through trauma or through suicide. I can't even count the number of experiences that I've had, and I'm just one person. So I think my goal would be that every single person, at least in this country, I, I'll, I'll make my, my dreams a little like more reined in, that every person in this country would have an advanced directive before any, any diagnosis. And actually, I'm going to take that a step further and say that they would have talked to their medical proxy about that advanced directive. I think that's sort of like where things fall off a cliff, that unfortunately, there aren't enough people who are having these conversations, who are uh, making these plans. But even when they have a conversation with a lawyer or a doctor, they're not telling the person who they're actually leaving that decision-making to what they want. If someone gets hurt or sick, their, their child or their spouse or their sibling or their parent is making a decision based on a piece of paper. And what they think their loved one chose and what was in that reasoning before they made that choice, it's, it's impossible. And it leaves people with a burden of guilt that never goes away. So I think if I could dream up what, what we would be doing in five years around death, I think we would all be talking about it. It would be commonplace dinner conversation. Every household would have a, a go-wish deck, um, at least one. And hopefully there would be a lot less grief for how people die. There was a piece of the conversation that I didn't get to include, which is about a project that Ariel began over the pandemic called Millennials and Mortality Mondays. I'm linking to it in the podcast description, and I hope you have a chance to take a look. That's all for this time. With big thanks to Ariel for so vibrantly sharing your journey. Do you or someone you know have a story to share? Or are there topics you'd want to hear me cover? Reach out to me, Sarit, through the website besideproject.org. There you will also find written posts, resources, and explorations of where Judaism meets death and dying. Thanks for listening, and talk to you soon.